O God, that we may receive your blessing, touch our brows, touch our heads, and do not look upon us in anger. In a hard year, offer us mercy. In a year of affliction, offer us kindness. Dark spirits banish from us. Bright spirits bring close to us. Gray spirits put away from us. Good spirits draw near us. When we are afraid, offer us courage. When we are ashamed, be our true face. Be over us like a blanket. Be under us like a bed of furs. Amen. I say, I, I will say a word about the last two weeks that I've been gone. Uh, I uh, attended the uh, American Baptist Home Mission Society's Space for Grace meeting in Kansas City as a guest of the Home Mission Society in recognition of the gift that uh, the Palo Alto Church gave to them and heard some really wonderful speakers. I'm going to, in fact, quote one of them today or talk about one of them today in the sermon. And then uh, last week I was in Charlotte, North Carolina for the annual board retreat for the uh, Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists, of which I am the Emeritus board member. And uh, so I had uh, 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 really good experiences in both places. It seems to me that maybe my punishment for going away and having a good experience is to come home with COVID. I don't know. I don't want to test that any further, but anyway, that's uh, that's where I've been the last couple of weeks, so I'm glad to be back home. I certainly was glad to be back at my own bed. So this week I found myself intrigued with these words from the ancient book of Lamentations. You know, Lamentations is a text we seldom turn to. I believe I've only preached from it once before, though I did write a dissertation on learning the language of lament. But the book of Lamentations is a set of five poems or songs of lament. Traditionally, they are identified with the prophet Jeremiah, since their focus is the Babylonian exile, which is also that of Jeremiah. And since Jeremiah is sometimes referred to as the weeping prophet, there's a certain logic to making this connection, although it's unlikely that Jeremiah actually wrote these poems. Indeed, as Judah is conquered, Jerusalem devastated, and the temple destroyed, there is real cause for weeping and wailing on the part of the poet, the prophet, and indeed the people. John Holbert describes the ancient scene this way. After a lengthy siege, Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's armies broke into Jerusalem slaughtering the hungry inhabitants, raping the women, seizing the power brokers, priests, king and court, scribes, accountants, and herding them west toward Babylon. The great majority of the city dwellers were left to fend for themselves. The economy quickly collapsed, food sources disappeared, water sources were fouled, the daily rhythms of life ceased. People wandered the streets, dazed, confused, desperate for a bit of bread, a cup of water. The city became unsafe. 
as any semblance of order was replaced by chaos. Can we imagine a similar scene in our own time and place? Maybe the destruction of the World Trade Center or the mass shootings like Sandy Hook or Orlando or Las Vegas or other places or the devastation brought by Fiona and Ian in the past couple of weeks or scenes from the Ukraine from Ukraine. But horrible as those events were, they don't really quite match the widespread destruction and total disruption of daily life that the conquest of Judah and the exile would have been for those people so long ago. Try to imagine the destruction of Washington, D.C. or New York City or Los, Los Angeles or Costa Mesa. But those places, particularly with all their monuments to history, national cathedrals, finance, government, culture. While we may picture such destruction in the way it is depicted in certain end of the, while we may picture such destruction in the way it is depicted in certain end of the world movies, that's not really to feel it in our bones, is it? We can get the image, but to know what that kind of destruction is like like deep inside us is not in the experience of most of us. There's such a deep ache when the poet laments how lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. That opening line grabs you with a profound sense of desolation. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, London, Dresden, New Orleans after Katrina, cities and villages after earthquakes, monsoons in the Far East, floods in Kentucky and Pakistan. You get the picture. You can feel at least some of the pain when you see those images. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Prince hard times hurt in more ways than we can imagine unless we've actually experienced them. But for the most part, we are people of privilege who have been protected from just such experiences. And I don't mean to say that we have never known devastation or despair in our lives. We're a diverse lot. We do come from different situations. Some of us have fled from terror by night, hiding from bullets by day. Some have endured the loss of everything they knew and, uh, knew and loved in hopes of finding a better life. Still, most of us have lived most of our lives in relative comfort and peace. But Walter Buzard reminds us that there certainly are communities whose lack of means and political power have left them devastated and with a real sense of 
of having been forsaken by God. He says, I think, for example, of the despair of undocumented aliens who, though not always suffering violence, nevertheless do live now among the nations and find no resting place. Or think of other communities within our own borders who do not live in comfort and safety. Many people of color, the working poor, the houseless, people who are ridiculed and ostracized for sexual, gender, physical, mental, emotional, or age difference from the dominating norm. Even in the midst of all of our wealth and privilege, there are those who find cause to lift their voices in lament. Buzard continues his reflection. The lament of Jerusalem reminds us that such, a pain, that such pain is actually experienced by believers, by siblings, brothers and sisters on a daily basis. Beside the pockets of domestic despair, he writes, I think of the recent events in Syria, or I would add Ukraine, where far too many cities have literally been razed by artillery fire, where tens of thousands have died, not to mention the millions who have been uprooted and forced to flee everything they hold dear and familiar. One of the speakers I heard last week at Space for Grace was the eminent ethicist Miguel de la Torre, Southern Baptist, actually. Miguel is the consummate agent provocateur. Maybe a trickster would be another word for it. He loves, he delights in shaking people up. Not unlike a first century Galilean did when he told parables. Miguel insisted in his talk that there's no room for hope these days. No room for hope. He believes that in our time and place, we must learn to live with hopelessness. Part of his argument is that what we characterize as hopeful is almost always a set of false promises that never come to fruition. Hoping for what might happen but likely never will is just one more way of abusing and oppressing those who are downtrodden and living on the margins. There is no justice. There is no peace. There is no equity to be had. There is no point in speaking truth to power. They don't listen. They won't change anything. He advocates speaking truth to the powerless, the truth of hopelessness, which might then actually lead to the creation and sustenance of communities of solidarity among those who are down and out. Communities in which they, and perhaps we, might learn to actually care for one another. All right, I can hear you saying, enough already. Stop with the doom and gloom. You're starting to sound like Jeremiah. This is World Communion Sunday. We've come to celebrate the feast. It's another 
beautiful day in paradise, or at least it promises to be. No more weeping and wailing. And you have a point. After all, the title of this reflection is Holding Hope in Hard Times. It's just that sometimes I'm not sure we get how hard it is for some folks in this old world, and we need to have it called to our attention. I know I do. So maybe I'm preaching to myself today. The point is not to drag us down, but if we are going to hold hope, we need to hold it for more than just ourselves. Healthy hope is not real hope. If it's real hope, it has to be for you and me and all the world. In order to know the significance of real hope, we need to know something about the experience of real pain. We need to know something about genuine hard times to see how important hope is to those who hold on to it for dear life. We need to sit with those who hurt and weep with those who weep. In the midst of the pain and the tears, the threats and the destruction, the writer of Lamentations proclaims, The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down with me, within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Holy One never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. If I can't see the morning coming, maybe you can see it for me and help me to find the new day. If I'm sinking in despair, maybe you can hold out God's mercies for me to grab onto. If we find our neighbor beaten and robbed by the side of the road, maybe we can offer a helping hand because we know something of God's great faithfulness. If we hear hatred spread and find our siblings abused and oppressed as a result, maybe we can speak a word of justice or mark a ballot for righteousness, holding hope for them in the midst of their hard times. Bazard concludes his little commentary with these thoughts. Who knows, he asks, by empathetically weeping with those who hurt far away and with those who suffer in our own context, we may come to love them. Imagine that. We may come to love them. And if we come authentically to love them, our eyes might be open to see that the Lord to whom we cry out together is already there. Wherever he is, among the broken and suffering in our world, Jesus is there, wounded, pierced, weeping, but speaking a quiet promise of a reign of God of beloved community 
that will yet come. This is the hard truth in hard times. The living love letter, if you will. God in the person of Jesus Christ has already been there. Christ knows every experience. Christ knows the way in and Christ knows the way out. The God who holds the future is the God who holds our hands. Therefore, we can hold hope in hard times for ourselves, for our neighbors far and near, and indeed for all creation. God's mercies never come to an end. Great is God's faithfulness. Blessed be. Amen.